morning. Would you turn in your copy of the scripture or of your device to the Gospel of Matthew, last chapter, chapter 28, where we'll read in a few moments, Matthew chapter 28 from the Gospel. Back in January, I was prepared to preach this message, but tested positive for COVID. Got test results just the day before And at the time, Pastor Jim told me, no problem, but save your work. And so here we are today in God's providential direction. Our topic is the mission of the church. And I might add, and you might appreciate just in an effort to uphold our dear pastor, that I did tip him off midweek. I said, I'm coughing a lot, pray for me. I'm sure I have just a cold. But I think I should get tested just so I can say, maybe even from the pulpit, I don't have COVID, don't worry. So I got tested, had warned him midweek, and I got results on Saturday afternoon. I I looked at my text yesterday, and I texted Pastor Jim at 5.22 p.m. So he had less than 24 hours. He pulled out a manuscript from a sermon he had preached years earlier, he said. But I listened to him that day, and it was just this wonderful, masterful sermon that last Sunday of January, I remember thinking to myself, how does he do that? But good Pastor Jim. And so, again, today in God's providence, this is what we need to hear today from his word. These days, almost any organization or business has a mission statement that expresses the purpose or goal of that organization. It's usually just a sentence, sometimes just a few words. So if you can see who's Whose mission statements do you think this organization might be? Bringing the best user experience to its customers through innovative hardware, software, and services. And you see Apple. What about this? Inspire the builders of tomorrow. Young parents would know that company. And what about this? Most of us go here. Walmart. If you could put aside any possible worldview concerns you might have with that corporate position on certain social issues, would you hesitate to work for any of those companies, assuming that you were matched with a task that you felt capable of and knew you'd be trained and supported in that task? I think I could work confidently for Apple or for Lego company or for uh, Walmart and even support their, their core mission. We have a lot of confidence in these successful companies. Yet, when Christians hear the mission statement of the church, Christ's words to his disciples, a mission that we totally agree with, we tend to respond with fear or guilt at their mention. For sure, it was a difficult mission even for those first century believers to embrace and move towards. But I'm convinced we don't hear the tone quality of Christ's words in the way that he intended us to. We question our ability or our worthiness to join in this mission, and the task we're challenged to take on is overwhelming, yet the promises that sandwich that directive of Christ are also greater than we can comprehend. So we tend to dwell, or at least I do, we dwell on one-third of that statement by Christ and perhaps are paralyzed by a sense of fear or inadequacy while we ignore the greater two-thirds that contain these wonderful promises of God's character. All power is given to me, His omnipotence. I'll be with you until the end of the age, His eternality. 
So we have this invitation to join in the mission of the church. And, and what is the mission of the church? At its core, it's just two words. Make disciples. And it's God's mission. It's God's church. It's His work. If we wrote a mission statement for the church, it might simply say in a few words something like, making disciples of Christ through God's enabling. And so our scripture text this morning will remind us that God encourages His people in the work of discipleship through an understanding of His power and immortality. So as we go to these last verses of chapter 28 in the Gospel of Matthew, think with me, uh, maybe using a little imagination about Christ's last words being spoken to His friends, His disciples, just before He ascends into heaven and following His bodily resurrection. Imagine the emotion and the tension of that setting. The narrative of the Gospel of Matthew has just told us that the chief priests had devised a plan whereby the soldiers who had been guarding the tomb of Jesus would be bribed. And they would say that Jesus' disciples had come and had stolen his body away. So there was a lot of fear, some confusion still in the hearts and minds of their disciples, of the disciples. One of their close entourage, we assume a good friend that they had eaten with and and shared ministry with, had committed suicide. And they know now that their leader, the, the beloved example for them, is leaving them too. There's hatred and consternation on the part of those who crucified Christ. And there's a desperate struggle in their lives to explain away an empty tomb. That's the atmosphere the disciples are dealing with as we read in verse 16 of chapter 28 in the Gospel of Matthew. These words. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of our dear Lord. So let's pray as we continue. Lord, we do ask, as we deal with these verses from your word this morning, such familiar passage, Lord, maybe, maybe overly familiar, and yet so many times in our lives we've been unable to uh, completely fulfill them in our own lives, Lord, we've we have had fear or we have had excuses. And so we pray that you would bless the word to our hearts this morning and do the work in us that each of us needs. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This morning we'll look at the task we're charged with through the lens of one word. The word go. Go ye into all the world, Christ told us. And in what way do we go on the mission of the church? Our text points us, I would suggest, to at least four things about the nature of our going on mission. First is that we go unavoidably. That is, we're already going. We tend to hear these commands in our English translations and we hear go and disciple. As if we need to leave where we are and perhaps go to another country. But there's really only one command, one thing that Jesus says we must do. One thing which involves three activities. 
Our command is to make disciples of all nations. That's the one imperative. Make disciples surrounded by descriptions of what we might be doing as we disciple. We might be going. We might be baptizing and teaching. So these words could actually be translated from the Greek, going, make disciples, baptizing and teaching. Or Dr. Wearsby suggests it could be translated, or as you go, or while you are going. So what is the core ministry of discipleship? You look even at a secular source like Wikipedia, the definition there, I don't know if it was contributed to by believers or not, but it says that a disciple primarily refers to a dedicated follower of Jesus. In Christianity, that is. This term is found in the New Testament, only in the Gospels and in Acts. Discipleship is not the same thing as being a student in our modern sense. A disciple in the ancient biblical world actively imitated both the life and the teaching of the master. It was a deliberate apprenticeship which made the fully formed disciple a living copy of the master. To go, make disciples, doesn't mean that Jesus commands every believer to leave the setting they're in, to go as a missionary to another nation. Some will be called. But even the Apostle Paul in Romans 15, we hear described that he encouraged his friends to support him as he went to Spain, yet he didn't try to take any of those believers with him. He merely tries to enlist their hearts. It does mean that while so many of us are not called to go overseas, we are called to be busy at home here. Again, one writer suggests that going is not even part of the command. It's not something you need to decide to do because it's a present action. Something Christ assumes you're already doing. We go about our lives to other humans everywhere. To the gas station, to work, maybe to the home across the cul-de-sac. We go through church ministry. We are going. And in the reality that we're going, Scripture logically asserts that God is the one doing the sending and Christ is the one doing the building through local churches. One writer asks, perhaps rhetorically, who sends those going? Who baptizes the new convert? Who teaches the new convert? God does this through a local church. Making disciples is bigger, greater than any one individual's burden to travel to another place or evangelize someone. It involves the organized efforts of a local church where we hear the word preached, where we observe the ordinances practiced. We don't do these things on our own. We do them under the authority of the local church. And we could think here of how many of our own efforts and gospel conversations have been prompted by our local church's leadership. We are already going unavoidably if we have accepted the mantle of being a disciple ourselves. And the primary means of this, the starting point for going is through our local church. So we go unavoidably and wonderfully, we also go empowered by Christ, whose church it is. Theologian Wayne Grudem describes God's power this way. God can do anything He wills to do or anything that's consistent with His character. God is able to do all His holy will. When Jesus made this bold statement, the religious leaders hated Him for it. They hated Him. All authority, He said, or power in heaven and on earth has been given unto Me. 
Almost every time the word power is used in the New Testament, it's one of two words translated into English from the Greek. We've read, all our lives we've read from Romans 1 about the power of the gospel, the the dynamite-like power that changes a life at conversion. But here in Matthew, the word which translates to power carries a little different nuance. The nuance of privilege or right, a delegated influence that Christ has. It's used dozens and dozens of times in the New Testament. It's the same word used repeatedly in the book of Revelation where authority or power is granted to the great two witnesses mentioned in chapter 11. Ones who in the midst of violent opposition to the gospel will prophesy about Christ for three and a half years. It's a delegated power, delegated by God. All authority, all power has been given me in heaven and on earth, Christ said. This power is demonstrated by Christ in creation. As the Son of God, Christ has always shared the same divine power as the Father to rule over creation. In fact, the Gospel of John, the first three verses, tells us that Christ was at creation with God the Father, actively involved. We're told that all things were made through Him, that is Christ. Without Him was not anything made that was made. I remember reading once in some notes in a study Bible of mine that about Psalm 19, that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth His handiwork. And the notes said, we shouldn't allow the greatness of God's creation and His greatness as a creator to cause God to seem somehow distant or detached, but rather that that knowledge should remind us of His ability to know and care as a loving shepherd about the most minute details of our lives. This power over creation and God's tender personal care is is expressed repeatedly through Scripture. Matthew 8 tells us that His own disciples marveled that even the winds and the waves would obey Him. The Gospel of Luke, the young Virgin Mary is told that with God nothing will be impossible and she doesn't need to fear. Not the advanced years of her relative Elizabeth nor her own young uh, years and her virginity could stand in the way of God's plans for them. John the Baptist said that there are even some things that God can do that he hasn't chosen to do yet. John the Baptist said that if God chose to, he could raise up from stones children for Abraham. Jesus Christ has authority and power over the beautiful Appalachians, and the, the waters of the eastern seaboard that Jen and I had the joy of seeing this summer on a vacation. He knows every fish or whale that inhabits those waters, and he knows where they choose to live. He's a welcome visitor in any corner of his creation, whether it's the Marianas Trench, the, the deepest place in the ocean, just east of Guam, we're told, or, or if it's in the oxygen-starved heights of Mount Everest in the Himalayas, the the region of Tibet. Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch politician and theologian, is is often quoted for his eloquence in proclaiming, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, mine, Christ's power seen in and over creation. His power is demonstrated too in his public ministry. 
Matthew 7 describes Christ as teaching them as one who had authority. Not as the scribes, a a careful correction that Scripture provides there. We see His power through His miracles. In Matthew 8, this strong and mighty centurion is brought to his knees by the needs, the physical needs of a servant. And he says, I'm not worthy for you to even enter my house, but if you would but say the word, my servant could be healed. Centurions, chosen history tells us, for their size and their strength. And yet even he recognized Christ's authority, his power. We see Christ's power through his forgiveness of sin in Matthew 9. The scribes were grumbling among themselves that Christ was blaspheming to think that he could forgive the sins of the paralytic man. And Christ answers them, so that you may know that the Son of Man does have authority. The same word that Christ chose to use later in Matthew 28 in this great commission passage. So that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. A.B. Bruce in his book, The Training of the Twelve, writes, Christ does not say all authority is given unto me, merely to put a distance between himself and the disciples, but to cheer them on their way through the world as the messengers of the kingdom, to make them feel that the task assigned them was not, as it might well have seemed, an impossible one. Do we believe what we've sung this morning, that Christ is our sure and steady anchor through our doubts, even when our sails seem torn by the unending attacks of the devil? The same power that created and taught and healed and fed thousands and forgave the sins of people 2,000 years ago is the power that can provide today for a sister church in New York City or Paris, France or to protect our missionary friends in Ghana, or use our own church here in Greer to spread His gospel. We can have confidence that if, if in our future, any of us, a church's faithful pastor is led away, or a key family in a church to which you belong moves away, or that church even closes its doors, you can be sure God will raise up another faithful Pastor to pastor, other faithful people to serve, other congregants who want to grow. Even if a church explodes in a hurtful split, God can take those splintered portions of that church and He can start new ministries from them. He can take those imperfect people and do His work through them. God's power, all authority, is behind the mission of making disciples and can't be limited by the foibles, the shortcomings of a local church or its congregants. Nothing can extinguish the heart and the authority of God in accomplishing the end of discipleship. Jesus loved the church to the end. He purchased it, Acts 20 tells us, with His own blood. And so we sometimes sing the church's one foundation is Jesus From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and strive to see her fail, 
Against both foe and traitor she ever shall prevail. Other times we sing, Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. Now the weak can say they are strong in the strength that God has given. We go empowered by Christ whose church it is. We go motivated by love. Our great task is to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them, but not in any way for self-promotion or power, but out of love for the God we serve. One writer says this of discipleship. Let's be sure we're clear about something. We're not called to make disciples of ourselves, to look to us, admire us, learn from us, live like us. While there is something correct in this thinking, as Paul did invite the Philippians to imitate him and his lifestyle, we're called to make disciples of the God that we love, to his teaching, his wisdom, his grace and compassion. Our spirit should be like John the Baptist who gladly observed that people who had once been following him were now following Christ. And he supportively added, Christ must increase and I must decrease. The Great Commission is worked out in love and for God's glory. Certainly we have to be committed to the teaching of the Bible. The Great Commission calls for teaching new believers as much as it involves leading them to Christ in the first place particularly since Christ wants us to make disciples who observe all that He has commanded. So we're, we're talking in this Great Commission context about people who come to Christ as believers first time, but we're talking about our children. We're talking about one another in a church setting, wanting to teach and to observe all that Christ commanded. And the word observe here means much more than just a passive watching it in someone else. It means leading that Christ follower, seeing them grow eventually to a posture of guarding the gospel themselves. All its implications, guarding them from loss or injury by, quote, keeping the eye upon it. The word observe has the implication of detaining someone, holding something in custody. So our teaching ministry is vital Yet, even the exercising of a teaching gift can be motivated by pride rather than love. By a preoccupation with one's gift or ability. Instead of being motivated by love for God and the souls we're serving, a gifted teacher might teach out of a sense of being noticed or respected. Another preacher states it this way. What Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13 is this. The most extravagant exercise and display of spiritual giftedness can't compensate for a lack of love. I don't care what gift you have. I don't care how good you are at using it. If you're devoid of love, you're worse than nothing. And that's a sobering thought, especially when we've grown used to quantifying our viability and our place on the basis of our gifts. That's what was going on in the church at Corinth. The biggest problem facing a local church today in terms of an effective witness is not the absence of gifting, it's the absence of Christian love. And a loving heart will eventually turn its eyes horizontally towards those that we live with in our neighborhoods and in our churches. While being consistent in our vertical, personal, quiet time with God is essential and vital that relationship eventually has to be lived out in neighborhoods and churches horizontally. 
The psalm we read this morning reminds us that discipleship is going to happen as you go, assuming you're willing to engage in these horizontal relationships. Whether it's more internal, as the psalm said, one generation teaching another the great works of God, or more broadly into all the world, every nation, making known to the children of man, it said, your mighty deeds, God's mighty deeds. We need the horizontal element of human interaction that we find in the church, in its ordinances, in its teaching, as we find our way in the ministry of discipleship. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we personally interacting with the teaching of God's Word in the way that God has called us to? Not just as passive listeners, but as ones desperate to observe all the things, all the things that Jesus commanded His own close friends and disciples to do. We go motivated by love. And finally, we go assured by His presence. Christ said, lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. That had to have had a unique comfort for these fearful disciples. And this is not just the reality of disciple life 2,000 years ago or of Emmanuel, God with us 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. It's not just a promise for the first apostles, but for our day and for this culture. It's a promise for the young mother discipling her small children. It's a disciple for the single person who's lonely. It's a disciple for the elderly person who more than ever is aware of their own mortality. It's a promise for all people, whether encouraged or discouraged. Lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. Jesus knew before he spoke those words that he would continue working in the lives of his church generation after generation long after the first apostles to whom he actually said it had died. This promise is for us today. And if the promise is eternal, so is the command. So we can't claim the promise without embracing the task that the promise strengthens us to. Are we involved in the command to disciple through this church? James Boyce writes, One of the most common errors for us as a church is to believe that someone else will do what God has commanded each of us to do individually. We give in to the fear of man, or we say that we're too busy and don't have much opportunity to share this gospel or participate in the lives of others. Acceptance of this responsibility was an important factor in the the astounding outreach and expansion of the early church. It was not just Paul or the other leaders that carried the gospel to the farthest corners of the Roman Empire. Instead, Christians, whoever they were and wherever they were, told others about their Lord. So are we praying about the ways God might be directing us to go, to go? Are we willing to go to a neighbor across the street or go while on a business trip? Are we recognizing that our involvement in the Great Commission is under God's authority and lasting presence? Could we approach neighbors we've never met with a small gift to initiate a relationship? Some small step? Could we learn names? Could we find a way to connect for another time? What small step are you willing to allow God to empower in your life? On our vacation earlier this summer, one of our, one of our trips in the car, Jen and I, 
We're reflecting on the small steps which others took that so impacted our own families, impacted us. Jen's grandfather emigrated to the United States from Mexico and in God's providence moved in next to a little neighbor boy who who repeatedly pestered him with invitations just to come to Sunday school. On Grandpa Mercado's first visit to Christ, uh, to, to church, he accepted Christ and gave his entire adult life to serving the Lord as a Baptist pastor. One little step from a little boy. In my family, a man gave my father a gospel tract when my father was a, a, an unbelieving, lost church attender elsewhere. Then someone else invited my parents to a Bible study in someone's home. Small step. Not a church service, a home Bible study. Dad and mom were saved in their 40s. Shortly thereafter, my siblings and I all heard and understood and embraced the gospel for ourselves, beginning a life of discipleship. This morning, Scripture has reminded us that God encourages His people in the work of discipleship through an understanding of His power and immortality. It's God's work, but can we join Him in it? May God grow our faith to see Him more clearly and trust Him to lead us in this ministry of discipleship. Let's close together in prayer. Lord, you know our needs and you've heard us this morning. And we ask that you would apply your word and strengthen us through it. Lord, do your supernatural work in each of us. And Lord, we now pray to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.